If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, we began a new COTC Essentials class here. This is sort of an introduction to our shared life as a local Anglican church. More than 20-some people are participating in this class, learning more about what God is doing among us. It is very exciting. We always start this class, COTC Essentials, with an articulation of the gospel, with an announcement, an articulation of the announcement of what God has done and is doing in Jesus for all creation, for us. That is what is at the very center of our life. This good news is most essential, we might say. One feature of the gospel that we mention in our first installment of this class is the reality that the gospel is fundamentally communal. That can be hard for some of us from a Western uh, background to grasp. We're so focused on the individual. But a feature of the whole biblical story is that God is concerned with making for himself a people, collective, a group. He's concerned with blessing all nations through Israel and from every tribe, tongue, and nation, drawing together one people in the knowledge and worship of himself. This theme runs right through Genesis all the way to Revelation. Once you were not a people, but now in Christ together you are a people. The communion of saints globally and through time. Yet the beauty and the majesty of this theme can all too easily get lost in the day-to-day reality of what it means to share life together. With different perspectives from different cultures. With people who are just plain annoying. Life together as God's people is no simple task. The difficulty of this comes through loud and clear in our reading this morning from Romans chapter 14. As we near the end of our long series through Romans, and it's been a long time, we are getting to the nitty-gritty of life together as a gospel people in Rome. Our text this morning describes a situation where quarreling, contempt, and judgment are features of the church's common life. A situation where the sincere love that fulfills God's law, which we've been reading about, talking about, is not readily present. But the jealousy, the dissension that characterize life in the night, they're all too readily apparent. We live in fragmented times. Think pieces, study after study, tell us this. We have no shortage of reasons to be divided and distrustful both in the United States and across the globe. In such times, in such a context, the ability of the church to live together as one people across ethnic and cultural differences despite potentially divisive perspectives is not this idealistic add-on, like wouldn't it be great if that were true, but it's this fundamental testimony to the gospel. It's witness to the grace and power of God who saves us, who draws us together in Jesus. In this context, in this time, Paul's instructions here take on particular import. 
The call to live together in sincere love is a major part of what it means for us to embody the good news today. So we must treat Paul's words here, addressing this specific aspect of Roman church life with seriousness as God's word for us. And as we set our focus here today, I'd like to organize our thinking under two headings, new status and shared allegiance. So first, new status. Just yesterday, I was helping a neighbor of mine move just a few items as they changed houses. While we were moving their things, I noticed that they had a certificate of authenticity for a particular piece of furniture. They didn't ask me to move this piece of furniture. (laughs) But they had this certificate that declared its provenance, its value. Whatever I or anyone else walking through the house might have thought about the value of that piece of furniture was irrelevant. Its worth and status had been declared, defined, certified by someone with knowledge and authority. A core piece of the message of Romans is that a similar declaration, a similar certificate has been made for you. You have been certified authentically in Christ. That is your status by faith through baptism. Whatever else might be said of you, whatever else you might think of yourself is ultimately irrelevant. This is a theme we've returned to time and again. That you have been declared to have a new status, certified, authentic, And this same truth, this same new status, now forms the basis of the life together to which we are called. Let me explain. Accept the one whose faith is weak. More than toleration or what we might consider like arm's length acceptance, like, meh, you're okay. This initial command in the very first verse of our text describes this physical nearness and this posture of goodwill, commitment to the other. The same word used here describes the hospitality of those who rescued Paul and his fellow travelers from shipwreck in Acts chapter 28. They were accepted around the fire, brought near, cared for, blessed, and protected. And the basis for that treatment, that acceptance being extended to others To the weak in this case, as Paul writes in verse 3, is that they have been accepted by God. Same word. The basis for acceptance among believers is the status we share as those accepted by God. Not because of our virtue, our adherence to a particular code, whether that's religious or cultural, but on account of the grace, the power of God made available to us in Jesus. He is the one who is able to make us stand, verse 4 declares, to stand where you don't belong in and of yourself. The same word used in verse 3 and verse 1, accept, is is used throughout the psalm. Psalm 65, verse 4, 27, verse 10, 72, verse 24, to describe the features of life near Yahweh with God. It carries with it connotation of blessedness, welcome, protection for those who are near to Yahweh. 
That is yours in Christ. That is God's declared status over you, every one of you, totally unrelated to any performance or measure of worth that we might come up with. You have been certified acceptable to God in Christ. And because then God has extended this welcome, such hospitality, in this unconditioned way, the strong to whom Paul is writing are to act in the same way toward those who are weak, weak in the faith. Precisely who these terms apply to is much debated, but it seems likely that the weak in this case are those primarily Jewish Christians who lived in Rome at this time and saw aspects of Israel's law as still binding over their lives, related to days, related to dietary restrictions. That's the weak. The strong, who Paul names himself as being among, were those who understood these restrictions to be extra and unnecessary who understood that their status was rooted in Christ fully and finally in God's gracious and unearned declaration over over them. Now, it's hard, perhaps, for us to even identify with this particular debate. But the point is less the specifics of the debate than it is that this disagreement, this disputable matter, led to this division in the community of insiders and outsiders. That, I suspect, is something we can identify with. We've all been to high school. We all have that experience here in the church, perhaps, but also outside of it, of being in-group or out-group and navigating the realities of that, right? Like attracts like. We associate based on affinity and alignment in perspective, politically, of course, but in other ways as well, shared interests, shared cultural background, just the ease of getting along with certain people. And Paul here is addressing a situation of explicit, active contempt and judgment, right? Like there's something wrong here. But the command to accept in all its fullness, if you take that full meaning that we just unpacked, I think it precludes inadvertent, passive exclusion as well. God has not passively welcomed you into his life, but in an active, costly, and sacrificial way, he has drawn you near. He's accepted you. He's given you this new status. Beloved daughter, beloved son, this same kind of active and costly hospitality is what we as the church then are called to as well. That Paul writes to the strong here suggests that those he considered weak were in the minority in this community. And that he identifies that minority as weak in faith suggests that Paul actually thought their perspective was wrong. He goes on to write in chapter 4 later on that these dietary restrictions are no longer binding. From his perspective, these people have got it wrong. But even so, he doesn't say argue them into submission. He doesn't say, make sure you've dotted every I, crossed every T, and you're in the right. He says, accept them. Extend the same kind of acceptance you have received in Christ, this gracious and hospitable welcome, because the weak are accepted by God just as you are. We are predominantly a majority culture congregation. 
And we are predominantly educated and upwardly mobile people. To put it even finer, we are predominantly families with young children. Nothing wrong with that. And those who do not fit in these various categories are not weak in the faith. But they may experience themselves to be outsiders in our community in just the way the weak that Paul describes here also did. And so the same charge that Paul extends to the strong in Rome, I would suggest, extends to us. The same call to costly and active acceptance, to the welcome and embrace of those who may not be readily insiders here among us. Who is a sister or brother in Christ that is different from you? Who is a brother or sister in Christ who might have different life experience, different cultural background, different perspective? How might you extend yourself in hospitality? How might you invite such a person in as a reflection of the reality that God has accepted them? As a testimony to the reality of the gospel that makes beggars of us all and unites us all in the abundance of God's grace. What the people of God share is not an affinity for the same cultural artifacts, like we all watch the same TV shows, or a uniform political affiliation, or a shared ethnic makeup. What we share is a status that is not our own, that is not our own to earn, but has been gloriously, graciously declared over each of us, accepted, belonging, beloved, Actions then of hospitality across dividing lines, across those things that might rend our togetherness, are a reflection of this truth, this reality. Opening your home to a Christian who is different from you, sharing the table who is someone, with someone who is in a different life stage, even better, someone with whom you know you disagree, hearing their story is a testimony to our shared status as those who have been drawn in by the love of God in Christ. It's a reflection of our shared conviction that in the life and death, that in life and death we belong to the Lord. It is gospel ministry to do this kind of thing. It reflects the pattern of Christ's own life that we've seen in Mark 10 and Isaiah 53. The Son of Man, Lord of all, come to serve. So we are called to serve one another in this way. Of course, I'm aware. This all might raise some questions as well. What exactly are disputable matters? And does Paul's call to accept the weak in faith, those whom he believes to be wrong, suggest a kind of free-for-all in Christian life, a kind of moral relativism, Only God can judge me, as many a tattoo proclaims. These questions, I think, lead us to our second head, a shared allegiance. Many of you, I think, I hope, will remember using a compass in math in school. I don't know how often compasses are even used today in this fashion, but I'll explain it briefly for those of you who don't remember. But the needle point of the compass acts 
as a reference for the arc or circle that is then drawn, right? It's the fixed point, the point that does not move at the center. The other end, the little part where the pencil is attached, moves in reference to the needle point, which remains stationary. And from that fixed point, where you put that point down, a variety of arcs or circles can be drawn within the field, the, the range of motion of this compass. I think this idea might help us understand Paul's teaching here. The vision that Paul expounds here in Romans 14, especially in verses 5 through 9, is of a life that is lived in reference to Christ in its entirety. The whole of life for those in Christ, right, from life through to death, is lived in reference to the Lord. He is the, the fixed point around which the life of every believer orbits. So those who eat only vegetables do so to the Lord and give thanks. Those who eat meat do so to the Lord and give thanks. This is the divining posture of those who are in Christ. A shared allegiance, a new allegiance. In contrast to the kind of life we, we saw described in Romans chapter 1, where God is neither glorified or given thanks to. And that kind of life is marked by this devolution into futile thinking, into disorder. But for those in Christ, life is now lived in reference, with reference to Jesus. And it is a shared allegiance, a, a shared fixed point in Christ who is Lord of all, both the living, the dead, both the strong and the weak. Yet that shared allegiance does not mean total uniformity. The school that I grew up going to, we wore a uniform gray slacks, white shirts for the boys, this kind of like tartan kilt for girls with a white shirt. We wore a uniform, K through 12. But there's variety, even though we're all uniform the same, right? There's different body types, there's boys and girls, there's all kinds of variety. We did not look all the same. We are all called, as we've seen, to clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ. That's the gray slacks and white shirt of the Christian life. But what that looks like among us, clothed in Christ, will vary. It will vary among us. What it looks like for one of us who is Nigerian-born to be clothed in Christ may well look different from the one of us who is five generations deep here in Texas. What it looks like for the second-generation Chinese-American may well look different in some respects from those of us who are Canadian-born. Just kidding, it's impossible to be allegiant to Jesus and Canadian. We, it's this thing with the queen, we all, we make an oath, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but among those in Christ, differences will exist even as we are all allegiant to Christ. Differences in conscience will exist, right? Some people here in our community, out of their Christian convictions, adopt a certain kind of diet, vegan diet, vegetarian diet. For some of us, alcohol consumption is no big deal. But for others of us, by our conscience, we have a sense like that is not right for me. How we use our leisure time, how we spend our disposable income, what allegiance to Christ looks like will vary among us. But that is not to say that an infinite number of options exist. Think of that piece of furniture with the certification of authenticity, right? There's a variety of places that piece could go in your house. It could be in a variety of different locations, and that would be fine. 
But there are also inappropriate places for an antique like that, right? There are misuses of that piece of furniture. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm sure you can. And given enough time, I could as well. This is not to say that it's all entirely relative. The fixed point of the compass, right? Life in reference to Christ restricts the variety of the arc, the circle that can be made. Otherwise, you like break the compass or you have to move it, a new reference point. So it is for us. There are certain actions, there are certain patterns of life that one cannot adopt while living in reference to Jesus, while living out allegiance to him. There are ways of being in the world that are beyond what allegiance to Jesus will allow. That this is, is the case is suggested by the fact that Paul here is offering correction, right, to his hearers. He's not just like, oh, do whatever you want. He's saying, no, live in this way. And the same word used here in our reading for acceptance is used elsewhere, in Acts chapter 18, to describe the followers of Jesus, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they accept, they draw near Apollos, and they offer him correction, it says. They instruct him in the ways of the Lord. They better instruct him. So this is not just this, like, laissez-faire, you-do-you kind of thing. The entire, like, scope of Paul's ministry, read his letters. He was not ambivalent about the ways that Christians should behave. What may or may not actually be a disputable matter takes some teasing out. But what we can say clearly is that the commands of Jesus, the stuff he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, the stuff recorded for us in the Gospels, is binding for those who are in Christ. We have to take that seriously if we are to declare ourselves allegiant to him. And furthermore, we have the teaching, the example of the early church in the New Testament and beyond. These followers of Christ who articulated a vision of what allegiance to Jesus looks like lived out together. And they relaxed certain elements, ritual elements of the law, while holding forth its vision of holiness and justice and worship as binding for those who are in Christ. In concert with Jesus' own teaching, at points they deepen the call of the law upon us. And lastly, we have the Council of Christian Community today. We discern together the implications of the gospel for our life corporately and our lives as servants of the Lord. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, together we discern what does allegiance to Jesus look like in 21st century Austin. This kind of life, this kind of discernment takes humility and it takes intention. It takes humility because we are always prone to self-deception. We are always tempted both toward legalism and trusting ourselves to our own efforts and holding others up to our standard. And we're also tempted to license, to lying to ourselves about what our life actually suggests we are allegiant to. It takes humility too because we are always growing in our lives in reference to Christ. There is no point of absolute arrival. There's this continued reformation as we bring the whole of who we are in line with Jesus. It takes humility and it takes intention. It takes a certain moral seriousness. The point that Paul concludes with in our text is that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. That is a serious thing. 
That should give you and I pause. It frees us from the burden of judging one another, even as it sobers us to the reality that our lives before God will be revealed to him from whom no secrets are hid. You are the beloved child of God, graciously accepted by him. In Christ, you stand before the Lord. And you are a servant of Christ, the Lord of all, living in reference to him. A few years ago, uh, I used an illustration that came from the East African revival, the revival in Uganda and parts of Kenya that occurred largely among Anglican churches there and has continued to play out over decades. And I use this example of this couple that were moving from a more rural part of Uganda to Kampala, the capital city. And I described how as they were making this move, the community that they were a part of, the Christian community they were a part of, gathered to talk and to pray to discern what it meant as they took this move to do so as the followers of Jesus. They considered questions whether it was like legitimate for this couple to purchase an attack dog to guard their belongings. They discussed whether it was legitimate for them to purchase insurance for their home or whether that was no longer living by faith. And it struck a chord with many of us. I could see it going off and afterward conversations with some of us desiring that kind of life. And the particularities of like insurance, attack dog, that might not be stuff that we're like, I'm not even thinking at that level. But that picture of a community gathered together under the Spirit, living all of life in reference to Christ with humility, with serious intention, is compelling. It's what we are called to do. It's how we are called to be. How might you start in this? How might I start in this? I think we have an example in the prayer on the front of your bulletin. This is a prayer was written long ago with out-of-date language by Jeremy Taylor, who was an Anglican priest and theologian. But it expresses, I think, the heart of this shared allegiance that binds us together. O oh Lord, sanctify our bodies and souls. Living God, let our bodies and spirits be servants of Jesus. Father, let us do all things for his glory. A simple place to start might, make the, might be making the intention of this prayer your own. Making it your own daily. Inviting someone else into that intention. Sparking conversation. I'm not sure that I'm living in this arena of my life to the glory of God. In this way, do you discern that I am a servant of Jesus or is there some other allegiance animating me? But it might begin for us simply there in prayer and in conversation with those around us, those whose lives are intertwined with us. At the very end of our gospel reading, Jesus describes how his life is given as a ransom for many. That word ransom carries with it connotations of rescue. You have been rescued, ransomed as a hostage, granted new liberty, fresh freedom, new status, acceptable in the eyes of God, able to stand. But that word ransom also carries with it this connotation of cost, of price paid, of redemption, and of a transfer of belonging. You now, by the cost that Christ has paid, belong to him. You have a new allegiance, a new status, yes, but a new allegiance as well. 
bought with a price. This is our shared life, accepted by God and sharing in allegiance, living in reference to him. So let us go forth today, bearing witness together to these truths. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.